five, four, three, two, one. Hello, I'm Sarah Ruffi, the Woman Warrior Lawyer, and welcome to You and Your Life with Sarah Ruffi. And today I am welcome or I am proud and excited to have a conversation with the esteemed Thomas E. Berg. Mr. Berg, briefly introduce yourself if you would please. Well, my name is Tom Berg. Um, I'm 77 years old, retired, uh, live in Merrill, Wisconsin, um, have had one primary career and a couple of other s careers in retirement as well, um, had a fun life. And your primary career was? Uh, I was a special agent of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, for just under 32 years, uh, retiring in 1999. And as a child, was that always your dream to become an FBI agent? Actually not. Um, I grew up in a, a small working class town in Ohio near Cincinnati. Uh, first member of my family to go to college. Uh, I did in college what I did well, math and chemistry. Uh, then one day I saw uh, a brochure on uh, the FBI, an FBI special agent position. I thought, that's really interesting. I, I seemed to qualify in every respect except that I was too young. And um, as luck had it, I was offered a graduate fellowship uh, in chemistry uh, by the University of Idaho and had to find out if that was right for me. Uh, went to graduate school at the University of Idaho. Um, quickly learned that I was not a uh, laboratory chemist and theoretical chemist. I'm an out on the street talking with people kind of person. I didn't realize I was a people person. And so I went back in and interviewed with the Bureau. The Bureau hired me to ultimately uh, end up in the crime lab in Washington, D.C. Um, in fact, they offered the promotion a couple of times and, uh, from the field, and I was having so much fun doing what I was doing. Uh, I turned it down both times, and then they let me alone, and I had a career, an entire career in the field. So. How old were you when you saw this brochure? Because you said you were too young to join the Bureau. Well, the minimum age to start for an agent is 23. I was a senior in college, so not quite 22 maybe. Had another year or so to go. And uh, in fact, I came into the Bureau just three months after my 23rd birthday. Actually had my appointment letter before I was 23. What was the process to get into the Bureau? Well, I went into the Cincinnati office and applied, uh, was interviewed, uh, testing. Um, then they um, do a background investigation. And you passed. I did. <laughs> and I was pretty straight-laced. Uh, uh, anyway, then um, it actually the process went fairly quickly because at the time um, the Bureau was hiring, uh, Bureau has these ups and downs with money from Congress or, or freezes, and it was a time when the Bureau was looking for more agents for a variety of reasons, and I was hired then in the spring of 1967, entered in the fall uh, in September. And my offices in the Bureau out of training were uh, Jackson, Mississippi, uh, Chicago, and then Waukegan, Illinois, and then uh, for the last 22 years of my 32, I was senior resident agent at Wausau, Wisconsin, in the Milwaukee Division. And that pretty much covered all of northern Wisconsin and the UP, right? Well, the Wausau office, there were two of us, covered um, a nine-county area of northern Wisconsin, about the size of the state of Vermont. That was our primary territory. Now, if I were conducting an investigation up along the Michigan border and I found out that I needed to talk to somebody across the state line, um, I certainly could do that. My credentials still were in effect there. Um, we didn't. We don't travel around like some of the TV shows show people doing, but we basically worked the origin cases in our territory. So, you went to school, you went to college, and you were focused on chemistry and math. Correct. And is that what you got your degree in? Yes. What? What enticed you about the FBI? Um, I can't really put my finger on everything. Um, it was just an interest, interesting idea. There were, it was no law enforcement in my family background. Um, but um, 
I liked the idea. Uh, thought it would be an interesting career. I seem to have all the right qualifications except for the age, which you'll get if you stay around long enough. <laughs> and you're lucky enough, right? Yes. So you started as a field agent. What types of, in the Jackson, Mississippi office, mm -hmm. what, well, how did you end up going from Jackson, Mississippi to Chicago and Waukegan and ultimately beautiful central Wisconsin? Well, it's, it's really a process. Um, out of training, you go to what they call your first office, which basically is where you learn how to be an agent. And um, in, I was actually only in, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Jackson headquarters for uh, a few months, and I was transferred to the um, Laurel Resident Agency. Laurel was the headquarters of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan of Mississippi. And I had had a lot of really good assignments already out of headquarters uh, because I was the only single guy in the division. And so when it sends somebody on per diem away from their family or sends somebody on per diem that uh, doesn't have anywhere, nobody to you come were home it, to. Huh? And so I got some good assignments already and apparently caught the attention of somebody because then I was sent to Laurel, which being single was probably another reason uh, I went there. But we, we worked uh, civil rights cases. We worked general criminal cases. We worked Ku Klux Klan matters. Uh, you got to learn a lot about different kind of people, people who were different than you were, and it was a very good experience. Um, at the end of about a year, um, typically agents are moved on to their, quote, second office, uh, which is usually a larger city office. And uh, in my case, I was a Midwestern guy from Ohio, uh, was in Mississippi. Logically, it was Chicago, and that worked out. Um, I, some of the most fun I had as a street agent in the Bureau was uh, working fugitives in Chicago, uh, tracking down and arresting people uh, all over the city. Um, the hot summer of 1969, uh, for a whole variety of reasons, is still my favorite time of and life. Why would that be? Well, <clears throat> I was in Chicago. It was hot. I like hot weather. Cubs were winning the pennant and then blew it in the end. Uh, I was dating this neat girl from the office that I eventually <laughs> married. Um, just everything in the summer of 69 came together to be uh, quite... And, of course, it was the 60s, and uh, Chicago was uh, Chicago. It was, it was a fun time. <laughs> and it still puts a smile on your it face. It does. <laughs> so going back to Laurel, Mississippi, sure. if, if I know my movie references... Isn't that where Mississippi Burning was based, and wasn't that based on an actual case? Uh, the Mississippi Burning case was an actual case. Um, it actually happened in Philadelphia, Mississippi, which is uh, covered by our Meridian office north oh, okay. of Laurel. But <clears throat> the people involved in it, uh, the main man that was the head of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan in Mississippi, Sam Bowers, uh, lived in Laurel and had a business in Laurel. And I've met Sam. Um, so that was a part of it, yes. Uh, but the Mississippi burning case uh, um, was made after a real case. That's what I thought, and it was a real FBI case. Yes, it was. Before I got there, of course. Oh, okay. That was a 1964, 65 case, and uh, I got there out of training at the end of 1967. Oh, so you missed that excitement. Um, that excitement, yes. <laughs> Had enough of your own, I'm sure. It wasn't that, it wasn't like TV. Nothing ever is. No, it isn't. So now let's skip to Chicago and this girl you met at the office and started dating and ultimately married. Mm -hmm. You went on a, a little road trip with her, right? For your, was it an anniversary trip? It was an anniversary trip. Uh, the, the trip you're talking about and you're dying to hear about I again. I am. Uh, <clears throat> happened just around our second anniversary. We got married in 1970. We were in the Waukegan office then, and she had left the Bureau, worked for the state's attorney there in Waukegan. But um, we went on a trip east, a driving trip in our Corvette. And uh, one of the things we did on that trip, we uh, had made an appointment to 
visit with J. Edgar Hoover. If both of us had worked for uh, this living legend, and we ought to meet him. And Mr. Hoover was very receptive to that kind of thing. He liked meeting agents and their families and hearing about them and shaking their hand and just a general low-key visit. And so we arranged that. It happened on the morning of May the 1st, 1972, the day before our second anniversary. Um, we just went in and visited with him, talked to him a while, had our uh, picture taken, and went off about our vacation down into Virginia. Um, the next day, our anniversary, we were, I think, at Williamsburg or somewhere, and we had a reservation at a very neat inn at Charlottesville uh, for our anniversary dinner. And as the day progressed, we started seeing flags at half-mast. And, you know, you're on vacation. You don't know what's going on in the world and when you're on your Especially anniversary. Especially in the early 70s. Yeah, and you're on your anniversary. You don't much care. So uh, um, when we got to the motel or the inn, uh, we turned on the TV, and it, it turned out that Mr. Hoover had not awakened that morning. We had been with him in, in the last day of his life. So we came back to Waukegan. A um, week or two later, the photograph taken with him uh, showed up in the Bureau Mail. And, of course, uh, it hadn't been out of the camera, developed, printed, and ready to go so he could autograph it because he was already dead. Um, so... The picture showed a picture of Mr. Hoover uh, on one side of me with my kind of cat ate the canary grin, and on the other side, my pretty young wife with her fashionable 1972 mini, mini dress. <laughs> and so um, I have always said that and Pat, Pat, Pat was, uh, Pat's legs were her, uh, one of her strong points, and I have always said that Pat's killer legs uh, did in the old man. <laughs> so I would tell this story periodically, and, and she would... Uh, she would periodically tire of it and say, give it a rest for a while, which I would. And, um, and then not maybe a decade ago or a little more, um, we travel by train. It's no secret that I love trains. And uh, we were coming back from uh, visiting our daughter in the Washington, D.C. area on the Capitol Limited and uh, uh, having breakfast in the uh, diner with another couple, you get paired up that way in dining cars. Uh, he would, had retired from the correctional system in the state of Virginia. And so we had some common ground and we got to talking with him and uh, he was interested. His wife said, oh, I bet you have some interesting stories. And so I told the story of the last visiting with Mr. Hoover the last day of his life and just ended it there. And my wife, Pat said, what? You're not gonna tell the rest of the story about her killer legs? Mr. Harvey? So um, I said, uh, okay, and I told the rest of the story, but I said, that that's it. From now on, I'm telling the whole story. <laughs> the whole and, truth and, and nothing yeah. but the truth, huh? And since then, I've always used the told the killer leg story, yes. <laughs> so if I get a chance to register us, us if we come into uh, an event and you have a little tag, you have to put your name on it, you know, I don't put Tom, I put Hoover. And then on hers, I put killer legs. <laughs> that's awesome. It's a fun remembrance, yes. We have the famous picture. Um, she thinks she hides it, but every now and then I find it. And... Well, and it seems to me you also have the sign-in sheet from Mr. Hoover's office showing when you guys were there. We do. We have his, his office itinerary on that day showing us there who was before us. A famous bureau character named George Zeiss was in for his 30th anniversary. I remember talking to George beforehand and who was there after us there were a couple other people there that morning after us so we have one of the last photographs but not the very last oh well you know you can't have everything well it doesn't matter it's just a family memento and a story and a story and i like the the lead-in we'll get back to some of your bureau things but i like the lead-in about the trains and i know you do like trains you like them enough that that led to one of your other post-retirement careers. It did. Um, all along the way, I have been a train buff, railroad history, model railroader, anything to do with flange wheels on rails. Um, and uh, when I go back to my graduate school days in Idaho, I discovered a little railroad out in Potlatch, Idaho. Uh, people might recognize the name Potlatch being a large lumber company. 
Um, this was at the original site of the Potlatch Lumber Company and their original company railroad, the Washington, Idaho, and Montana Railway. And it was really interesting. I cut classes, of, took sabbaticals <laughs> a few days and, and rode in the caboose and in the engine and liked the railroaders, you know. And so anyway, I uh, went away to life and the bureau and all that. And at some point I decided it might be time I have a uh, wife and a daughter. I'd like to make a model railroad. I'll go to the library and get the book on Washington, Idaho, and Montana and, and build a model of it. And there's a book on everything in the library, right? Well, there of wasn't. course there is. Well, there wasn't. <laughs> so that started a decade or more of, of doing historical research on the history of that railroad in every way, shape, or form. Turns out the skills of an FBI agent are also handy in doing historical research. Imagine that. And finding where stuff is and unearthing it. Um, it also turns out that if you work for a bureaucracy and can make it work for you, it can help in a lot of ways. Like um, we were all required to have uh, in-service training every couple of years. And the training coordinator for the Milwaukee Division was always looking for people to fill slots at different schools around the country. And if I could find one in Seattle where I could go take a couple days after and go to the Weyerhaeuser archives or um, in Boise, I actually helped teach one in Boise and go to the Idaho State Archives. Or if I could, they needed people to work the World Congress of Aryan Nations every July 4th in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And I could go work, work a special early shift and then spend the afternoon doing research. Uh, and all I, it cost me were a couple of days uh, of vacation and extra motel rooms, you know, and the Bureau paid the way. They so, gave you your trip out and back. So that led to, um, shortly after I retired, really, because there was some stuff you couldn't finish, and the writing started when I retired, but that was the only real book I ever intended to write. Was the the title is White Pine Root, the um, uh, history of the Washington, Idaho, and Montana Railway Company, and it came out in December of two thousand and three, published by the Museum of North Idaho in Coeur d'Alene. And that was just the beginning of your book excursion. Well, as I said, I thought that was it, and uh, then it happened that I had possession of a large collection of uh, steam locomotive photographs was owned by a friend of mine who worked in the Milwaukee FBI office. It had been amassed by his grandfather several generations before. The collection covered like 1910 to 1955 at the end of steam. And we're talking fifteen to 20,000 photographs. And at some point, my friend was moving residences and said, uh, would I... Uh, could I, would I take possession of it and, and keep it for him because I knew about trains and he didn't. And after the experience of riding White Pine Route, I uh, <clears throat> came up with the idea that the, these photographs could be the basis for uh, a series of uh, railroad photo books that, you know, first you have to select the theme, select the photographs, research the photographs, and write captions, and that led to a whole series of other books on railroad history. Including the Wisconsin Short Line and Logging Steam. That's one of my favorites, actually. Well, how's that for picking the right one? Along with a, a number of other ones. Yeah, that's uh, maybe half the pile, maybe not. But um, it was, it, it, for me, has been a lot of fun. It's, it's kind of my place in the hobby among the places in the hobby. But we have this whole world of railroad buffs, and that, like I say, is, is my place there. I've gotten to meet an awful lot of fun people, interesting people, uh, done a little bit of traveling around in the United States based on that, and it's been fun. Well, but you not only put your books together, you also published them, right? Yes, Um they started out, actually, and that was about the sixth one we did on CD. Uh, started out the first one, uh, we really didn't know what to do with. I, I created the book, and then uh, the lady who became my business partner, Sharon Thatcher, who was also an author, uh, did book layout. 
and we put it all together. But this goes back to a time when uh, publishing a book was quite expensive. And finding a publisher had always had that conundrum. Um, you can't uh, get published unless you have an agent, and you can't get an agent unless you've been published. So anyway, we just decided to try it on our own, and um, we couldn't afford to publish a book, so we created a photo CD. Uh, this would be about 2004, 5, 6, somewhere. And I took the CD to a railroad hist history meet, it took 50 of them, and sold 44, and we realized we were onto something. The stack of books you just showed are, I think, are all the books that are duplicated uh, on CD. Well, of course, CDs, nobody can even put those in their computer anymore. That's so true. So at some point, the sales of one CD led to the production of the next one, and at some point we decided we would convert all those to books, and we had other titles that were better suited for books, just basically to reach a different audience. So we became Merrill Publishing Associates, Sharon Thatcher and I. Um, we also published a book written by Sharon uh, uh, on the laser's edge, which was about a, the, an FBI case that I was involved in. So let's talk about that. Okay. And I know that when you... That was one of your cases. It was. And when she <clears throat> wrote the book, all of the information in that book had to be available in the public domain somewhere. It couldn't just be in Tom Berg's head. Well, yeah. What it, it, it could have been in my head, but it all had to be cleared by the pre-publication review office at FBI headquarters when I signed my last uh, way out of the FBI office. Uh, we all have to sign that anything we write or publish has to be reviewed there first. So, yes, we submitted the uh, the manuscript there. Um, they came back with a couple of actually very good changes. Um, they were right. Um, but anyway, that's, so that goes into it. So give us the synopsis of the laser mm -hmm. story, knowing that <clears throat> it actually was set, the majority of the events occurred in and around Wassa. Yes. Um, Wausau had one of the pioneering uh, laser research scientists in the world. His name was Myron Muckerheide, also known as Mike Muckerheide. Uh, he was responsible for the uh, laser science program at North Central Technical College. Uh, he did medical laser research. Um, and at some point, Mike was approached by some local characters who realized that his lasers could be used for other than uh, medical purposes, in particular for weaponry purposes. And they wanted um, Mike to build them a laser weapon. Um, this was kind of going on before I got here. But I don't think anybody knew how to put the package around it. Um, Mike was talking to the agent, a couple of agents that preceded me, and one of them explained that when he didn't hear from Mike, he always worried that he hadn't heard from him. And then when he did hear from him, he wasn't sure he really wanted to because he didn't know how to handle it. He didn't understand brainy scientists. And I think Mike and I just clicked with my scientific background. Because you're a brainy scientist. Uh, I wouldn't say that, but I'd been around a lot of them and knew how to communicate. Uh, so um, the year 1978 was uh, when a lot of this took place. And I think when you're working with somebody that's cooperating like that and confidentially, uh, it helps to give them direction. And so things like, uh, well, what really made the case go was that this group of uh, local right-wing characters brought into the picture a state legislator named James Lewis. Uh, Lewis died here last fall, by the way. It was the last of that group oh, okay. to die. Um, but Lewis was kind of the darling of the right-wing of the Republican Party in Madison at the time. And um, so I began hearing about all these things that Lewis was doing and saying and going to do for this group, this little group of people. 
and so I we had to you can hear it but you need it in person so we had to call him out so I said well you need to meet him and as it turned out Mike was able to get a meeting with Lewis uh, it happened at uh, Radke Point Park in Schofield uh, these characters had guns um, Lewis made some uh, outrageous uh, statements we we would now call them uh, uh, domestic terrorism we didn't have the term then but things like what he wanted to do was to make a laser weapon and uh, focus it on the tower at O'Hare Airport and cause chaos in the skies and that kind of domestic terrorism um, so that really propelled things along now when you're working a uh, an investigation on a public official you get a lot of second guessing from Washington DC and there are a lot of things you can and can't do but uh, we managed to be able to do most of them the the crown jewel maybe was later in the case when um, we made a body recording Mike went in to visit Lewis in his office in the Capitol as far as I know that's the only time that's ever been done a recording of a sitting state legislator in the Capitol and in it Lewis was very corruptly talking one of the questions I had Mike ask him was uh, what's in it for you and Lewis talked about he could uh, living on a ranch in Guatemala and drive a Mercedes and things that are personally Money. corrupt. Um, in the course of all of this, this group had uh, gotten in with a uh, general in uh, the government of Guatemala, General Fuentes, and uh, so this is what they were going to do. They were going to create this laser weapon or have Mike create it and supply it to Fuentes, who at the time was fighting the guerrillas in the jungles of Guatemala. And so everybody everybody had their piece of the action. Um, Frank Turkheimer the, was the U.S. attorney then, and we uh, uh, he conducted a grand jury investigation. We had to bring the case down. Um, Lewis was going to a reception in the Taiwanese embassy in Chicago, and reportedly was going to pass a list of CIA agents to the tai Taiwanese, and you can't allow that kind of stuff to happen. No. Nope. TV would have them do it, and then, you know, then there'd be a big chase, and it would get away, and things would go south, but you can't allow that to ha happen. So we intercepted Lewis and brought him into the Chicago office and got the list from him and subpoena, served him with a grand jury subpoena. He went before the federal grand jury in Madison, lied to the grand jury. What a surprise. Shocker. And uh, we continued to round out the investigation then. Uh, he knew that we were on to him then. And um, his lawyer uh, made a plea agreement with the United States Attorney that Lewis would uh, plead guilty to lying to the grand jury. And I think the reason was so that none of the true corrupt nature of what he'd been doing would come out. And so he pled guilty. He just walked in one day with his lawyer uh, pled guilty to an information charging him with lying to the grand jury, and the public was all dumbfounded because they had no prior knowledge of anything going on like that. And uh, then he was sentenced uh, slightly later, uh, went to the federal prison at uh, Leavenworth. And he was actually charged while he was sitting on the bench, yep. or while he was a sitting In the legislature? legislature? Yes, yes. In fact... Uh, you don't see that I believe, happen anymore. I believe he was reelected while he was awaiting sentencing. Ignorance is bliss, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so that was my first real experience with the uh, public corruption cases. And uh, at the time, Wisconsin always said we had no public corruption. All of our public officials were honest and uh -huh. I kind of blundered into one you know a new guy on the block didn't know any better and found some stumbled into what didn't exist right right but what what you stumbled on had far-reaching ramifications w way more than anybody realized and, and probably than they still realize uh, now periodically we see for instance uh, people shining lasers on uh, into the eyes of pilots, which can blind them. Um, we all knew that back then. Um, we see the military now uh, with laser weaponry that, that you can actually shoot a missile out of the sky with a with a laser. Um, 
things that we that Mike told us were the case, but were uh, possible. Yeah, but uh, the general public saw it as Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon or something. And fortunately, I had one or two people at FBI headquarters in the laboratory or had scientific backgrounds that understood this and were able to keep the bureaucrats away. So when you were working with Mr. Mucker Heidi, you said part of it was guiding him through the process. Mm -hmm. Did he also explain to you the whole, the workings of lasers? And did you use your chemistry background? Did that help you actually understand the ramifications of what you were working with? Well, yeah, the, actually the physics part of it, uh, understand what a laser is, uh, focused beam of light waves. And mm -hmm. yeah, um, and that helped a lot to be able to understand some of that and to, to be able to talk with Mike, not on his level, but at least on some scientific level. And how did you manage to sell that to the lab in, in D.C. to get more support? Well, um, one of the people that was most instrumental was a, a man named Jim Greenleaf who became went up the Bureau to a very high level. Um, he's still kind of a friend at a distance, but he was the guy, actually he was assistant special agent in charge in Chicago at the time that we took Lewis down in Chicago. And we talked, and he was the one that said, you're on the right track, stay on it, I'll talk to some people. And uh, he had, I was assistant director of the laboratory division at one point, but he even went higher than that in the Bureau. Well, and Mr. Lewis wasn't the only corrupt public official that you found over the years, was he? Well... No, uh, that period of time in the late 80s, or late 70s, early 80s, um, actually the Lewis case was just wrapping up when uh, we, we got a complaint on the uh, sitting judge in Hurley, Wisconsin, a small town at the north end of my territory, that was helping his mistress manage her house of prostitution. And um, that case took about another year to... Uh, to put together, but uh, the judge uh, was went to trial, a four-week trial in December of 1980, was convicted and uh, lost his seat on the bench and went to federal prison as well. So those two cases back-to-back -back, uh, were hard to duplicate the rest of my 22 years here. <laughs> they kind of were the shining star, the highlight, I suppose. I guess I made my bones and people left me alone then and said, okay, he can do his job. So earlier you had said that they twice you passed up promotion opportunities to get into the lab out in D.C. Mm -hmm. What would that look like had you taken the job? And what was the, the draw to stay? Well, the Bureau sends all agents, uh, the lab analysts are all FBI special agents, and the Bureau sends all of its special agents to the same training, at least it did then, and um, then sends us to the field, like to Mississippi and Chicago, to understand the job and understand what the evidence is all about, and so that when there are submissions coming to the laboratory, we know how that happened out in the field. So if I had been there, I'd have made more money, um, I'd have been living in Washington, D.C. Which costs more money anyway. Yes. I, 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 I was never that fond of Washington, D.C. till after I retired, to be honest with you. Um, and um, I would have been analyzing submissions of evidence. Uh, I wouldn't know. I don't know what section of the laboratory I would have been in, but probably something in the general chemistry area. Um, analyzing them for results and reporting, and then if that was... Uh, a key piece to a, uh, a case anywhere in the Bureau, anywhere in the country, uh, whether it be federal or state law enforcement, because other agencies submit their evidence, um, you'd go out to then testify on the analysis of that evidence. Um, I just, as I said before, found out I was a people person and uh, was having so much fun doing what I was doing, and I think doing a fairly good job of it, that uh, I really didn't want to go back there and be pigeonholed there uh, 
and not do what I was doing. So I, I, the way I put it, I made the Bureau's product for 32 years. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't have some auxiliary um, purpose in the Bureau. Well, and that kind of leads to my impression prior to meeting you, and I know some other agents, but growing up, the impression was always that, you know, you got the FBI agents and their, their suits and they're all so serious and intimidating. And intimidating wouldn't necessarily be a word that I would use to describe you up until it comes to battling wits. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, well, you, you know, the, the old saying, you get more uh, flies with honey than you get with, with vinegar. vinegar. Um, but um, people are people. Um, if you interact with them and you like people, and generally speaking, you can uh, work with people and get them to see what's in their own best interest. Uh, maybe it's a sales job. You know, I often said, I sold law and order to people who didn't believe in it. But um, that's really much more what it's really like. Uh, I, I'm sure I had my own spin on it. Being senior agent in a two-man office in uh, Wausau, Wisconsin, allowed me to have a lot more leeway maybe than if I were in a headquarters city or at Washington, D.C., uh, doing things my way. Um, you know, con uh, confessions can come anywhere from having a cup of coffee at Something's Brewing uh, to uh, a jail cell or whatever. But um, that's just, you know, my way is not the intimidating way. That's, TV has it all wrong. <laughs> As usual. So getting a confession at Something's Brewing, is that a real, a real story? Uh, a little bit. Uh, there was a lady here in town, uh, I won't mention her name, very nice lady and a friend, worked at a local bank, and she was the, the go-to person to subpoena records from that bank. And um, as often happens, she was on vacation, and the bank detected an irregularity and found that she had um, embezzled some money from the bank and opened a case, uh, got a confession from her. Uh, she was a friend, talked with her, and she said... Uh, well, she called and said, I wonder if you could talk with my husband and I. He doesn't know what this is, how it really works and so on. And I said, sure, we'll have coffee at something brewing. And I, I regularly, our office was in the federal building half a block away. I regularly would meet people there because it was much less intimidating than any other way. And so we were there talking and I explained it all. And I finally said, uh, the one thing you don't want to have happen is you want to have it all out on the table because what if we go through the legal process and then we find something else? And she got this faraway look in her eye, and I thought, well, there's something we don't know yet. So we set up for her to take a polygraph exam, and in the interim between that period of time, uh, we had detected what the other um, embezzlement was. And so when we she showed up for the polygraph, uh, her lawyer said, well, we really don't need to do this, and here's why. And so she then confessed to all of it. Um, she then was convicted and went to prison. Um, if I saw her today, she'd still be a friend. And I think from some of the stories that you've told me or shared with me, it's that next-door neighbor, friendly manner that is actually very un unnerving, if you will, that people just unwittingly open up. Well, that can certainly happen. Um, <clears throat> you've got to have a whole uh, variety of approaches to things depending on, you know, you learn this by experience, what you want to do. Um, I mentioned coffee. Uh, asking somebody to talk over a cup of coffee is a very neutral, non-intimidating thing. If you want them to be a little more unnerved, you might come knock at their door and talk to them. And I always said, uh, you know, if I said I'm Tom, showing my credentials, I'm Tom Berg from the FBI, I need to talk to you. First of all, the FBI drowned out the Tom Berg. They forgot my they name don't right, care. right now. And the if it, I'm from the FBI and I need to talk to you isn't giving them an option. I'm here because I need to talk to you. And so that's very often, if, if that was called for in a situation. 
Um, I mentioned the jails. Uh, something came up recently about in our Crime Stoppers uh, organization about about jail, and I said, "Yeah, I probably spent six months of my life in jail, except I got to go home at night. From, you know, I was there interviewing. <laughs> I wasn't stuck behind the bars. Yeah, I was there interviewing someone in in a jail cell or something, and uh, that's not an experience very many people get. So um, that that also is uh, kind of a fun remembrance." So even though you retired from the the bureau in did you say ninety nine? Yes. You never really got away from the law. I have would that be yeah, fair? That would be fair to say. Um I'm not sure which of my things you're mentioning, but for well, instance Crime Stoppers For was instance, one. I've been on the board of the Crime Stoppers of Lincoln County um since I retired, so twenty two years. Um and involved in that heavily. Um, as you know, um, I was asked to and served nine years on the uh, Office, Office of Lawyer Regulation District uh, Investigative Committee yep. here uh, in Wausau. Um, 2000 to 2009, I think, were the years. Um, the other way that just happened um, was that growing up, we have a da- one daughter, and growing up she had been a figure skater, uh, being good parents, we were involved in the skating club. Uh, they needed somebody to be on the skating board. Well, I can do that. Uh, well, a couple of years later, they needed a skating club president. Yeah, I can do that. Um, my, uh, you know, she, when she left, uh, when she graduated from high school about the time that I was retiring, because those things went together very nicely. Um, she really ended her skating career at about the intermediate level. Uh, she has my genes in her. You know, she was not <laughs> Michelle Kwan. Um, but um, we had had, during my presidency of the skating club, some very interesting happenings. Uh, in fact, probably all the things we could have. But one of them was uh, involved a situation involving a professional skating coach, male, and a, an underage skater, female. And when I called U.S. Figure Skating headquarters and talked to them about it and asked for what are their policies and what are they, how do they handle these things, and they had really no clue. Um, so I did what any law enforcement officer would do. You handle it by the rules, and uh, he was arrested by the sheriff's department and, uh, and went to prison. And so fast forward a little bit, uh, they got to know me. At, at U.S. Figure Skating Headquarters. And when 9-11 occurred, um, they realized that they didn't have a clue about security and they maybe needed someone to help them out in security. So they asked me to come out to Colorado Springs. Uh, we wrote the guy, security guidelines for U.S. Figure Skating. As far as I know, they're still in effect. Um, I didn't have any real purpose in retirement uh, I tried being a consultant, and that was lousy. Uh, <laughs> well, you don't get to orchestrate everything when you're a consultant. You're right. So they said, would, well, would I be their security advisor? And I said, yeah, I'll do that. I don't need to get paid for this uh, as long as they covered all my expenses. Um, so I got to help run security for their major events for several years, Um and got to hang out with all those beautiful people and get to know many of the skaters of that era, uh, coaches, etc. cetera. Um, we did uh, Skate America in Colorado Springs, uh, Spokane, and Reading, Pennsylvania. The um, Na- U.S. Nationals at Los Angeles in 2002 and the, in 2004 in Atlanta, and then the 2003 World Championships in Washington, D.C., which was just as the Iraq War was starting. And um, all of those were immensely fun things to do. And so uh, I look at the list of all of the past Olympic champions that I've gotten to meet or know, um, and there are quite a few of them. I have a few favorites. Uh, Michelle Kwan is everything she's billed to be. A very nice person, very bright in my opinion, the, the best figure skater of her entire era. Um, Michelle's agent, 
Chef Goldberg was one of the few people that really understood security and how it affected his meal ticket, Michelle. And so we would do things, uh, use the example of the Atlanta Nationals. Uh, late at night, we're in his Cadillac riding around under the um, freeways of Atlanta, finding an escape route from the uh, arena so that if there were any problems, he could get her out of there without uh, you know, having to go through the crowds and so on. Um, Is he the only one that in that world that ever thought that far ahead? Yeah, he, he really, we hit it off from the beginning. We met out in Spokane at Skate America, which was my favorite of the events, kind of a small, neat event that you get to meet the skaters. You might go into breakfast and the guy that sits down to you next to you at the table is the Russian world champion or something. And uh, But we met there and immediately hit it off and both could see how we fit, fit together. Um, most of the rest didn't uh, for one reason or another. Um, everything from the skating moms who had to control everything no matter what they knew. Or uh, didn't know. Yeah. Um, but so uh, early 2004, we had done the Nationals in Atlanta. Um, it was really time, I thought. I, I was getting stale with it. And uh, they brought up the idea that they thought it should be run from their headquarters. And I said, I totally agree. And so we parted our ways, friends. And uh, that was the last I have done of any figure skating security. Did you have to put on skates as a security guy? Uh, <laughs> my daughter would be laughing right now. Um, when she was young, and I would put on this, my skates just to go out there with her. Um, if I stood up and went around very slowly, went around the arena, that was all it, all I could do. That's kind of what I figured. Her, her, her mom skated as a girl, but uh, but our daughter was the skater of the family. Another thing that you had mentioned was the Office of Lawyer Regulations. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember, did it change to Oler while you were on the board, or was it Board of Attorneys Professional Responsibility? No, I think it was OLR oh, when I was on the board. So that's through the state bar, and it basically investigates complaints filed against lawyers. Correct. So having met you on that committee, I know that your background helped on a number of our our investigations just because your way of looking at things, and you were much more calm than I was in our discussions as to guilt and innocence. Well, I... I, I... Flattered to hear you say that my perspective <laughs> was appreciated because uh, sometimes I thought I was talking in the wilderness. Um, but uh, I do remember one particular situation that uh, I said was the most egregious case that I had ever seen, and everybody else didn't see that much wrong with it until we were able to talk it out, and then then they did get the idea. So, yeah, there were some cases like that. Yeah, I remember one banker's box file, and I'm like, I'm a flippin' volunteer. But so, it, and that's how we met. It is. Um, I also look at it this way. Um, I'm, I've been collecting that retirement for 22 years now. Um, in my mind, I'm justifying it with things like OLR, uh, security for U.S. figure skating, uh, crime stoppers, anything I can do as a uh, public citizen to, for the betterment of my community. Uh, all that goes into justifying in my mind that I'm, I'm collecting that retirement as well. I look at it as a great way to give back. It is. And, and help the community in the process. Right. And there were some, there were some things that as a working FBI agent, I didn't have time to do, uh, for instance, joining the Optimus Club and being an active participant in that kind of community events. I could never be at a meeting every Wednesday at noon or something because I didn't know where I might be on the job. Um, so that's another way to, to give it back, yeah. So one of the stories you told me, just a kind of a passing comment, was how one of our local retired judges told you you should have gone to law school. 
Well, this was after retirement, and um, we'd had a rather our Crime Stoppers organization had rather had had a rather public flap with the chief judge of the district here, and she had directed her judges not to do something, and I went to see her and said, um, "You can't be directing your judges which." laws they can uphold and which laws they can't. If it's legal, they can't pick and choose. You can't direct them to pick and choose. And she said, you know, you're right. Um, you should have been a lawyer. And I said, oh, I did much better in life than that. <laughs> <laughs> and why do you think you did much better in life being a, a fed instead of a, a legal beagle? Um, I got to do the job. Uh, we were out on the front lines of law enforcement. Um, you know, truth is truth. It's not a commodity to be manipulated sometimes. Well, and the way I look at it, you got to gather the truth and you got to set the scene, set the stage, and the lawyers are stuck with what the people bring them. If, if I did a good job, then it, it has only one way of unraveling usually well, and it should make the the prosecutor's case a whole lot easier well hopefully right in the federal system if it if it isn't there it, it doesn't it, get charged yes and that's kind of sad for some cases but i get it mm -hmm. so what um tell me a little bit about like the crime fighters getting involved in that um, how did that Crime Stoppers organization. Uh, yeah, did you start that? Um, when no, um, Neil Strobel was the police chief in Merrill. Uh, he had been on the state Crime Stoppers board in his previous location in Waukesha, and he brought the idea of Crime Stoppers to Merrill. I was still working then, and worked with Neil, who was the chief of one of the departments I worked with, and uh, they founded Crime Stoppers of Lincoln County. Uh, basically, the idea is that Crime Stoppers uh, provided provides a tip line. Uh, fast forward to now to the computer age uh, electronic methods of submitting tips to help identify or solve crime um, and for people who don't want to be involved but want to see justice done and that can be anything from legitimately a citizen who feels like they can't have their name in, involved with it to a drug dealer who wants to eliminate the competition um, but if they contact the anonymous Crime Stopper tip line and give a tip, um, it's passed on to law enforcement. Law enforcement sorts it out, acts on it, determines the validity of it or not. If it uh, results in an arrest, uh, Crime Stoppers authorizes a reward. We have a confidential method that a tipster can pick up a, a reward without uh, ever being identified. And um, many tipsters either say in the beginning, I don't want the reward, I don't want a reward, I just want to see justice done, or never show up to pick anything up and it gets back into the treasury. Where do you guys get your money for the treasury? Well, um, we just had, uh, we went from a, a relatively small organization uh, in that uh, Lincoln County really only has three law enforcement agencies, the two municipal police departments and uh, the sheriff's department. The, the tip line calls went into the sheriff's department. They would answer. So it was all very compact and simple. Uh, our only real expenses were paying for tips uh, or advertising our services. Um, we've grown... And we've kept up with the times that now we have a thing called P3 Tips, which is an online method of submitting tips through some anonymizing software. Uh, it goes through a company down in Texas, I believe. And uh, the tipster then gives them the tip. It comes back to the law enforcement coordinator. Um, and the tipster can agree to be recontacted, again, through the anonymizing system. Uh, with um, codes. Uh, most don't, but it can be that way. And now it's kind of bringing it into the, the computer age as opposed to what we, we once had that was very simple. 
Uh, getting back to your question, where do we get the money? Um, donations have always been the support of Crime Stoppers. Um, the flap we had with the judge was when uh, the judge in our county, the district attorney, was asking for a surcharge on all convicted felons for uh, to be donated to Crime Stoppers. At that time, that was legal in the state. It's been changed. Um, but um, more recently, uh, we've really gotten to be a, a very dynamic board, I will say, and the retired police chief, Ken Neff, and Merrill uh, is now the president, I'm the vice president, and we work well together. Uh, just last weekend, we had what's co- what we call a shred day, where uh, we get a sponsor, in this case, two banks sponsored a truck from a uh, confidential shredding company. They're certified to handle confidential material and shred it, and we provide the truck where people then can, co- we advertise, and people can come and bring their shreddings, their old checks, their credit card receipts, anything confidential that they want. And uh, it goes into dumpster-like things. They go into the truck, and the people can actually stand there and watch on a screen as it's shredded in in front of them. So um, just a couple weeks ago, we we had one of those. Uh, We had a little sideshow there. Um, One of the founding members of Crime Stoppers is a real neat fellow from Merrill, he just turned 98 years old, World War II vet. Uh, his nickname is Heine. And Heine, which where I grew up, just met a German, and maybe it's that way here too, I don't know. But Heinrich? Um, but all the little old ladies in town love Heine. <laughs> and so Heine made us a Crime Stoppers jail out of PVC pipe, and we take it to our public appearances, and it's kind of fun. And so we put Heine in the Crime Stoppers jail, and we had kind of a jail and bail the slogan was "Free Heine," so we had the Free Heine event as a sideshow to uh, to our our shred day last weekend, and everybody got a big kick out of it. And the little old ladies all come out and put money in the jar to for for, for Heine's bail. For Heine, we got him a uh, uh, a jailbird costume, a striped jail costume. Oh, nice! Oh, he he's hamming it up for all it's worth too. <laughs> so we we all have fun with what we're doing, and I think maybe that's goes back to what you said about being the stuffy FBI agent while I'm I've never been known to be stuffy you've probably never been known to be a a typical FBI suit either thank you (laughs) yeah well I've never been known to be a typical lawyer either (laughs) right (laughs) right I get that um so earlier you had talked about history and your your love of history Mm mm-hmm And you and your wife are both involved in the Merrill Historical Society. Correct. And that's part of giving back. But that also led to your newest career in media. Would that be fair? Uh, Yeah. I have a great face for radio, as you can all see. (laughs) Uh, Well, yeah, the backstory: uh, She's on the board of the Merrill Historical Society. She's the office manager, the day-to-day person there. Um, I'm involved in a whole variety of ways, supporting her, uh, getting assignments I hadn't expected by phone. Yes, and, dear, right? And, yes. Um, but um, then, well, it, it really started with Crime Stoppers. We would put uh, promotions on the air. The departments would ask us to publicize it particular case they're investigating and I would write it up and put it on the air and we would get tips as a result and then when the historical society wanted to do some things on our local radio station I I would do those I write books you know I can write their news releases I wrote news releases in the bureau um, etc and so I've just kind of gradually moved into some of these things um more recently, uh, the Rhinelander TV station's been having a, a historical, uh, they have a news magazine at 4 o'clock, and they have uh, history segments, and they've, we've been working with them, and, and I've done a number of them, as has my wife, Pat, and others. Uh, we just did, last week was the Merrill Week on there again, and they went through our museum and did some segments. So yeah, I do a whole variety of uh, appearances, apparently. 
And uh, I've jokingly said, they're all getting me while I'm still here. So out of all of the hats that you've worn over the years, which one's your favorite? Well, I'll always be an FBI agent. My dreams, in my dreams, I'm, an F, I'm investigating something. Uh, you know, it might be some totally bizarre, goofy situation. Fortunately, I don't remember my dreams for more than a minute after I wake up. But when I wake up and think, what was that? You know, I'm still the FBI agent in my dreams. So I'll always be an FBI agent. And that's nothing that you dreamt of when you were a little boy. Oh, not at all. What did you want to be when you grow up? I don't think I really knew. Uh, the joke is uh, when I, I, my mother had a picture of me uh, trick-or-treating. wearing my, my grandfather was a musician and had a band uniform, so I was wearing his band uniform with a big star on it. And uh, I was a policeman in one Halloween. But uh, that's the only law enforcement that had any... I, I really didn't have uh, great aspirations. I didn't know what I wanted to be. Uh, I just went along with what I did well. And uh, reaching those crossroads and making decisions as I confronted them. Um, and they I, seem to have served you well over the years. Well, you know, if, if there's one thing you can do for your kid, it's um, have them make good decisions. And I'm, I'm happy with the decision-making process that I've had. Our daughter makes great decisions. I think we did well there, too. So that... Awesome. All right, so I have one final question for you. Okay. If you could simply snap your fingers, no effort required. By simply snapping your fingers, you could change one thing about today's society. What would it be? Respect for law. The lack thereof. And what would that look like? Well, everything from the way some people treat police and law enforcement, um, the underlying elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about, about these criminals who end up being shot in a shootout with police, is that when confronted, they chose to shoot at police. They're... they're choices in their decision-making They're process exactly right. isn't the best. And, and that goes back to things like the um, TV and movie industry that glamorizes these things, that plays these up, that creates these expectations that they watch on TV and then think, well, if I'm confronted by police, I should run or I should shoot. Um, that's not the way it was meant to be. No, the wise choice would be you do what you're told Live to do. Live to fight do. another day and, yep. and, yes. That's, it really is sad kind of where we're at. Oh, I, what, how do you think, because this is something that we've talked about at our house even. How do you bring that back around? I know we have politicians and groups talking about defunding the police and when you came in I'm sure you saw my back the blue sign in the yard um, how do we as a society bring that back around and revive the respect that our our police officers actually deserve because I wouldn't want to put on that uniform and put my life at risk every time I walked out the door to go to work and worry about my family even when I'm at work or when I'm not at work because of the bad people that I've had to deal with mm -hmm. and all of a sudden my family's at risk too. Yeah. I, I don't have an answer for you how we fix it. The tribalism has gotten to be just nonsense. People don't aren't looking for the truth anymore. They're just looking to argue, to fight. Um, you mentioned something that I want to bring up. I, I never really had that situation with the people that I, the cases I worked. I never had situations where my family was threatened or in any other way. Uh, you know, I 
always had a listed phone number. Um, granted, I didn't put my street address beside it, but uh, people could always reach me. And I always tried to play that. And, and of course, if you treat people right, they're going to treat you right too. I, I've just always felt that way. Um, I don't know how we're going to get to the to where we're going in the current situation, um, but it's not healthy for anybody. Um, people paint it as all minorities think a certain way, and that certainly is not true. Um, minority community needs protection of the police because they're more often victimized by uh, lawbreakers in their own community. And yet we don't hear from all of those good, law-abiding, decent minority people. So I don't uh, have an answer. I was just if I, if I did, I'd be running for something, but I would never do that. Nah, if you didn't, I don't. I can't see you running for public office, but you'd probably be quite good at it. Um, I think I work better from not, whether from not being in the office. I work better as a kind of a quiet lobbyist. That would be a good hat that you wear. Because I, I think you are a good lobbyist for all of the different organizations that you're in mm -hmm. and the different hats that I've seen you wear. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You're welcome. So thank you so much for your time. And we may have to do this again at some point in the future. Well... A lady once said to me at a party, I bet you've got some good stories. And, I know you do. And I do, but I don't wake up in the morning thinking, today I'm going to tell all my stories. But there are a few more that we haven't talked about, so if that happens to come around another time, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Well, thank you very much, Tom. And if you enjoyed this interview and you would like to hear more, check out some of my other interviews, click the subscribe button, and live life on your terms. Have a great one.